0: Support your journey to wellness at B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Canada in one that had plot twist after plot twist after plot twist small talk sucks. So let's dive in. 27 year old jessica lloyd was one of those gorgeous social butterflies that everyone seemed to know and one way or another you met her and you loved her she was just fun to be around and she made friends everywhere she went and she kept them and she wasn't one of those people who got too busy to feed her relationships whether it was her friends or her family she was the one person that everyone could always count on if you called she answered if you texted she texted back and that's exactly what she did on Thursday, January 28th of 2010. At 10.36 p.m., she texted a friend, and as far as anyone else knew, she went to bed so that she could be at work bright and early the next morning. But the following morning on Friday, she didn't show up. She was a no-call, no-show, and that was so out of the norm for her that her coworkers knew something was up. They all tried calling and texting her to make sure she was okay, hoping that she wasn't sick or that she hadn't gotten into an accident on her way to work, but all of their calls went unanswered and none of their texts were responded to, which only fueled their concerns that something was wrong. When no one could get a hold of Jessica, they called her mom, and her mom went right into Mama Bear mode. She headed over to Jessica's apartment in North Belleville, Ontario, near Kingston, and her car was in the parking lot. Okay, so maybe she's home, maybe everything's fine, maybe she forgot to charge her phone and it died and she accidentally slept in, maybe she's just sick. Her mom knocked on the door, but there was no answer, so she let herself in. And inside of Jessica's apartment was like a ghost town. Everything was there. Her keys, her purse, her wallet, even her glasses were there. But Jessica wasn't. It was as if she had just been going about her normal life and disappeared. It was clear to Jessica's mom that her daughter didn't just leave on her own accord because, frankly, you'd want to lock your door behind you, but that's hard to do without your keys. You'd want to take your car because you won't get far without it, but again, her car was there and her keys were still inside the apartment. You'd want to take your wallet, you know, for literally everything ever, but alas, that was left behind too. So her mom wasted zero time and reported Jessica missing. Now, usually when we cover missing persons cases, we hear about a lull in police or community activity, especially when it involves an adult. You hear that adults are allowed to go missing, or maybe she just left for a second, but she'll be back, so just wait a little while and let us know if you hear from her, but that's not how this one went. When Jessica was reported missing, the community and law enforcement hit the ground running. That very afternoon, missing persons flyers had already been printed out and put up all around town, a Find Jessica Facebook group had been created, and the Belleville Police Department had a tactical team and an ATV team out searching the immediate area surrounding Jessica's apartment. They search all day Friday, but they don't find Jessica. By Saturday, it wasn't just the community in the Belleville Police Department searching for her. Less than 48 hours after Jessica was reported missing, the Belleville Police Department, the Radwan Police Department, the Sterling Police Department, the Ontario Provincial Police, and Trenton CFB had all teamed up together to search for Jessica. For those of you unfamiliar with Canada, the Trenton CFB is the equivalent of a U.S. Air Force base, and they had volunteered to do low-flying aerial searches to see if they could find any traces of her. The freaking Canadian military had been called in. This search was coordinated, meticulous, and unrelenting, but by Saturday night, there were still absolutely no signs of Jessica. The search continues on Sunday, and Belleville authorities start conducting interviews with friends and family to see if anyone might have any insight into where she might have gone, anyone she might have been hanging out with or talking to recently, or if they had any suspicions as to what might have happened to her, but there's nothing. No one can think of any reason she would have left, or if she was abducted, who would have done it? Everyone is at a complete loss. This case gets massive amounts of attention with all the different departments pitching in, including the Canadian military. Everyone is talking about it. And that Facebook group created on Friday already had 15,000 members. Come Monday morning, all ground and aerial searches are completely halted. They found something. They won't say what it is, but it's something. And they shift their focus from outside to inside Jessica's apartment and go through it with a fine-tooth comb. On Tuesday, February 2nd, locals notice a heavy police presence off of Highway 15 near Puzzle Lake Park, and it's not long before word gets out that a body has been found in an embankment. Everyone holds their breath waiting for news, wondering if this is Jessica. Their heads are spinning and the wait is excruciating. But in the off chance, it's not her. They don't want to waste any precious minutes not continuing their search. So they continue to work through the wait. They print out 500 car decals with her missing persons information on it and hand them out to family and friends and anyone willing to put them on their vehicles. A large tractor trailer is even seen parked on the side of Highway 401 with a massive sign on it displaying all the details of Jessica's disappearance, so big that no one driving down 401 could miss it if they tried. That night is long. The time feels like it could go backwards if it wasn't standing still. Friends, family, the community, everyone are all still wondering, was the body found in the embankment Jessica's? The following morning, they get the news. The body found in the embankment was of a male victim. It was not Jessica. While they're gutted for the family of the victim, there's a sense of relief that Jessica may still be alive, that they might still be able to find her, and her family is optimistic. But later that day, something uncharacteristic happens. Generally, we see police telling communities not to be concerned, that this crime or that crime is an isolated incident and they don't need to be worried about their own safety, but that's not what happens here. On February 3rd, authorities release a statement or warning, I should say. They tell all women in the area who live alone to lock their doors, lock their windows, change their routines, and not to go out alone. All of a sudden, it becomes eerily clear that Jessica's case might not just be Jessica's case. Maybe all those departments came together because her disappearance matched crimes in their jurisdictions. When the police tell you it's time to panic, it's time to fucking panic. The following day, those fears are all confirmed. Mix 97 quotes Sergeant Christine Ray as saying the OPP are considering the possibility that the disappearance of Jessica Lloyd of Belleville could be connected to crimes involving women in the Quint area. They include the unsolved murder in late November of Marie France Como of Brighton, who was found murdered inside her home in November of 2019 and assaults on two women by someone who broke into their homes in Tweed last September. I mapped out Belleville, Quint, Brighton, and Tweed, and it's a one and a half hour stretch across Highway 104 and Highway 37, a simple drive along one simple route with now four possibly connected victims. On the evening of Thursday, February 4th, authorities set up a roadblock on Highway 37 right near Jessica's apartment, and they stopped every single vehicle that passed through. Now, a roadblock isn't something you see very often in the days following a crime, but Highway 37 is along that simple route containing four likely connected victims, and I'm guessing they're thinking that whoever is doing this drives that route regularly. We know they found something during their weekend search around Jessica's apartment. And if I had to guess, this roadblock was more of a search than a stop and chat kind of deal. The police were looking for something. While all of this is happening, her family and friends have no quit and have made it their mission to make sure that everyone knows Jessica's face, that they know she's missing, and to contact authorities if they've seen or know anything. At this point, that Facebook group that had 15,000 members in just two days is pushing over 50,000. With that comes a lot of gossip, but her family is quick to squash it. They regulate the group like champs and ask that only factual information be posted. The police request that all tips be sent directly to them and not posted online as it's hard for them to filter what's a tip and what's a rumor on an extremely active Facebook group, all while fielding their own numerous tips that they're following up on on their own. Generally, I'd throw a little shade at a police department trying to regulate what's being posted in a missing persons group, but this department wasn't trying to hush anyone. They were trying to make sure they got every single detail without one being missed, and Jessica's family did everything in their power to make sure the community abided by this request. Seriously, Jessica's friends and family and this police department should write a book on how to handle a disappearance because they did everything right. A few days pass without any updates, new information, or sightings of large police presence around town, but on the 7th, we get a little insight into the two assaults police believe might be tied to Jessica's case. The two women who were assaulted were just down the road from one another on different nights, but both women were sexually assaulted and then bound to a chair while an unknown male took photos of them for two full hours before just leaving. Now, those few days of no updates were the only quiet days in this case, because on February 8th, the community is roaring. It starts going around town that last night, the night of the 17th, Belleville made an arrest, and they didn't just charge this mystery suspect in Jessica's case. They also charged him with the murder of Marie France Como and the two assaults in Tweed. Within hours of this news making it from ear to ear to ear, police locate Jessica's body. She was found in Tweed, in the same area of the two sexual assaults right off of Highway 37, where they had done that roadblock just days before. She had been murdered. The community wants answers. They've been invested in this case from hour one and with 50,000 plus eyes everywhere, it doesn't take long for them to notice an OPP crime lab set up at 62 Cozy Cove Lane. The house is an unsuspecting little white rancher with a small garage in an area known for being cottage homes, a place on the lake where people go on the weekends or spend their summers, and it's just a four minute drive from Highway 37. That's not the only place police are seen, though. On top of the crime scene where Jessica's body was found and the crime scene where the OPP was set up on Cozy Cove Lane, Trenton police are also seen in Quint, on the other side of that hour and a half stretch of two simple highways along the route of victims. Everyone is on pins and needles waiting for any update, any answers, and the police have a press conference scheduled for 1 p.m. I couldn't wait for the press conference updates while doing my research, so I did a quick background check on the address on Cozy Cove Lane, and the male registered as living there was a man named Russell Williams and nailed it. Before the press conference could even begin, locals catch the provincial police combing through the home of, wait for it, CFB Trenton's base fucking commander, Russell effing Williams. That's correct. The base commander for the same people who were assisting in the aerial search of Jessica Lloyd. The base commander for the base that murdered Marie France Como was stationed at when she was murdered. In fact, she was in the same 437 Transition Squadron as Russell Williams. According to military members who were under his command, Russell Williams would have been the one to approve that aerial search for Jessica. He also would have known that they weren't going to find her where they were looking. The route from Cozy Cove Lane to CFB Trenton is a straight shot down Highway 37 and Highway 401. Every suspected victim lived along this route. The wait for that 1 p.m. press conference feels like it takes forever, but when it finally happens, all the puzzle pieces are confirmed. They announced that during their ground search around Jessica's home, they found something that prompted that roadblock on the night of the 4th. During their roadblock, military officer Russell Williams came on their radar. It's mentioned that his body language and demeanor were just some of the factors that made them hone in on him, but what really caught their attention were his extremely unique tire treads, tire treads that matched some left in the snow at Jessica's apartment complex. They list Russell's charges as two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of forcible confinement, two counts of breaking and entering, and sexual assault. Authorities also give details on the exact location of where Jessica's body was recovered, and it was right off of Cary Road, just a 14-minute drive from Russell's Cozy Cove Cottage. We learn that Russell is married with no kids and that his wife was out of town renovating one of their other homes at the time of Jessica's murder, but she was present at the time of Russell's arrest. She's since taken a leave from her job at the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, and frankly, all signs point to her having absolutely no idea that her husband was a serial predator. Jessica's body has been sent out for an autopsy to confirm a cause of death. And in the meantime, the Vancouver Sun reports that agencies around Canada are now investigating all cold cases from every single military posting that Russell has ever been stationed at in his 23 years in the military, including their surrounding areas. From what I could find, it looks like he's been stationed in Nova Scotia, Ottawa, Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, even Dubai, and had most recently been stationed in Trenton, Ontario, so it looks like they're going to be pretty busy. Russell was assigned to his most recent base, CFB Trenton, in July of 2009. Just two months later, in September of 2009, is when those two home invasions and sexual assaults took place. Two months after that, it escalated, and Marie France Como was found murdered in her home. And just two months after that, Jessica Lloyd was killed. Judging by his intense activity and the very few months he'd been stationed in Trenton, I have a feeling all of this is just the tip of the iceberg. The day after the press conference, the Vancouver Sun interviews one of Russell's neighbors, and we find out that one of the sexual assaults Russell was charged with happened on the very street he lived on. In fact, this neighbor was actually questioned by police and given a polygraph test and eventually cleared of any involvement. That's how close they were to the actual perpetrator this entire time. Now, this neighbor seemed to have some personal connections with the provincial police because he goes on to tell another outlet, the National Post, that a search warrant was conducted on Russell's house and that they were looking for digital storage devices. We know he liked to take photos of his victims for hours, a black LaSanne's bra, a purple LaSanne's bra, thong underwear with a poodle on it pornographic photos and videos, white shoes, zip ties, and two baby blankets, among other things. When authorities executed the search warrant, CNews reports that their first order of business was to cover every window of the house with brown paper. This isn't uncommon in sensitive cases. They do it so that reporters can't take photos of what's happening inside. But a few hours later, they report seeing police leaving the property with bags of evidence, shopping bags, and a red leather purse. This garbage human not only took hours and hours worth of photos of his victims, he took extra trophies, including their clothes and fucking baby blankets, which belonged to one of his sexual assault victims who was a single mother and was just feet away from her infant during her attack. Imagine the kind of depraved you have to be to decide to take a baby blanket to remember a sexual assault you were responsible for. While we wait for updates in this case, the star does an interview with an FBI profiler named Mark Serafique, and his findings are terrifying. He tells the outlet, people don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to abduct someone and murder them. I'm sure there's a history. For me, the surprise is the number of assaults in a relatively short period of time. He's obviously intelligent. He's careful. So what's happening with him? Is there some sort of mental decompensation? Did something trigger this? Usually there's a progression. First, prowling, peeping, nonviolent, paraphilic, sexually deviant stuff, voyeuristic activities. At some point, offenders decide that's not enough. They'll cross that line into fantasy fulfillment. He may have acted out with willing partners initially, prostitutes or others, and then that isn't enough of a thrill and he crosses over into non-compliant victims. He's comfortable in the environment, he's breaking in, he's staying for long periods of time, he's engaged in other activities, binding, photographing. That isn't typically behavior that just starts. So with all that being said, it sounds like the idea that this isn't new and that authorities should be looking into unsolved crimes from other places Russell lived isn't far-fetched at all. It almost sounds like they expect to find more. And knowing all he did in just the six months he was in Trenton, I can't imagine what they're going to dig up. The profiler goes on to give some advice as to what crimes to look at considering the natural progression of a serial offender and says, I would be looking for cases where we tend to see sexual components that aren't necessarily seen as sex crimes. For instance, nighttime burglaries where someone's house is broken into but nothing is stolen or fetish type burglaries where they take in clothing. Serafique tells the outlet that he'd look as far back as to when Russell was 18 years old. And it looks like the investigators are. They tell the Globe and Mail that additional charges are anticipated. Everyone who knew and worked with Russell described him as quiet, pleasant, hardworking, and said that he pretty much kept to himself. The consensus was that he knew a lot of people, but not a lot of people knew him. He was just a guy they worked with who seemed nice enough and didn't seem particularly spectacular for any reason. People were shocked when they found out it was him, but not in the there's no way he did this kind of way. They were just surprised that it was the quiet, successful guy, and it seems to everyone that that's probably how he managed to get away with it for so long. Just how long that is, we don't quite know yet. With Russell in jail, his victims feel more comfortable sharing the details of their assaults and it's creepier than you could ever imagine. CNN News reports that Russell undressed his victims by cutting their clothes off with a knife but reassured them that he would be careful not to cut them after which he blindfolded, beat, and sexually assaulted them. One of his victims told him that her head was hurting after he had beaten her, and he went into her kitchen and got her some aspirin. After the sexual assault, Russell laid down a blanket that he brought with him and bound his victims to a chair that he placed on top of the blanket and let them know that he was going to take some pictures, even letting them feel the camera seemingly to convince them that that's all he was going to do. And then he did for two full hours. He was in no hurry. He had no fear of being caught or interrupted. He had planned these attacks out meticulously. One victim asked him if he was going to kill her and his chilling response was, no need for that. Neither of these victims were able to see his face and neither of them knew that he lived just down the street. On February 10th, this case took a turn that I don't think anyone saw coming, at least not at the magnitude it did. The Globe and Mail gets access to information about the night Russell was taken into police custody and the interview that led into the following morning, and it turns out that when they finally confronted him with his crimes, Russell didn't deny anything. In fact, he matter-of-factly confessed to every single one of his crimes. He confessed to the murder of Jessica Lloyd and led them to where he had dumped her body. He confessed to the murder of Marie France Como. He confessed to both of the sexual assaults in September. And he confessed to four dozen lingerie fueled break ins. Let me repeat that. Officer Russell Williams confessed to breaking and entering into 48 homes in an effort to steal their underwear. What started out as one missing person turned into a murder, which turned into two murders. That turned into two murders and two sexual assaults, and it has now spanned into two murders, two sexual assaults, and 48 break-ins. That FBI profiler could not have been more right if I'm doing the math correctly, that puts Russell at a minimum of 52 victims and at least 54 crime scenes for police to investigate all across Canada. Next week, we will dive headfirst into the continued investigation of a military officer, serial predator, and murderer, Russell Williams, and you'll learn just how depraved and calculated this monster is. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the depravity that is this case. I'll be bringing you part two of this case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. <laughs>